This morning, we turn our attention to Paul's words, Romans 14, beginning our reading in verse 13, continuing through the end of the chapter. Hear the word of our Lord. Therefore, let us not pass judgment on one another any longer, but rather decide never to put a stumbling block or hindrance in the way of a brother. I know, I, I know, I, I, and am persuaded in the Lord Jesus that nothing is unclean in itself, but it is unclean for anyone who thinks it unclean. For if your brother is grieved by what you eat, you are no longer walking in love. By what you eat, do not destroy the one for whom Christ died. So do not let what you regard as good be spoken of as evil. For the kingdom of God is not a matter of eating and drinking, but of righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. Whoever thus serves Christ is acceptable to God and approved by men. So then let us pursue what makes for peace and for mutual upbuilding. Do not, for the sake of food, destroy the work of God. Everything is indeed clean, but it is wrong for anyone to make another stumble by what he eats. It is good not to eat meat or drink wine or do anything that causes your brother to stumble. The faith that you have, keep between yourself and God. Blessed is the one who has no reason to pass judgment on himself for what he approves. But whoever has doubts is condemned if he eats, because the eating is not from faith. For whatever does not proceed from faith is sin. The word of our God. Let's pray. Our Father, as we come this morning to this powerful and yet perplexing passage, we pray that you would enlighten our minds, and that as our minds are able to apprehend that it would become kindling for the fire of our hearts and souls, that you would use this and grant us understanding that it might shape us and the way that we live our lives and the way that we live our lives in relation to other believers, both in this church, in this community, and as we encounter them throughout the world. That we may live for you, we may live for your glory, and we may live for one another and find peace and joy, as you have promised, in that kind of life. Bless us, Lord. Shape us now by your Spirit as we consider and dig into your Word. We pray for your glory and for the joy that is ours as we walk with you. We pray this and all things in the incomparable name of Christ Jesus, who is himself the Word incarnated. Amen. Paul declared to the Galatians, for freedom you have been set free. So do not let yourselves get caught back up into slavery. In other words, bondage to other people's standards and other people's rules. For freedom you have been set free. I suspect these are words that would resonate with most of us, and not only with those of us who are gathered, but perhaps, and likely, for most of our neighbors as well. See, as Americans, our most fundamental values have sprung from the soil of of liberty and individual freedom. 
It's just part of our heritage, going all the way back to before there was even a nation here where man just few miles up the road, stood up in a church during a gathering, not of a worship service, but a gathering of Virginia leaders and declared, give me liberty or give me death. Patrick Henry, a man of faith, a man of liberty. Not long after that, another part-time Williamsburg resident, Thomas Jefferson, wrote in the Declaration of Independence these words that we know quite well. We hold these truths to be self-evident. That all men are created equal, that they are endowed by their creator with certain unalienable rights, that among these are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. And even more recently, as it's been expressed by one who was trying to live liberty, though she and others uh, of her race were uh, not extended the rights that Jefferson promised, Rosa Parks wrote this, I'd like to be remembered as a person who wanted to be free so that others would also be free. Freedom and liberty are part of our cultural DNA, and so we feel as followers of Christ particularly um, affirmed when we recognize that this cultural value is also a something that is highly valued in our faith, that the Apostle Paul affirms yet again, it is for freedom that we have been set free. In our culture, it is if our freedoms are threatened, uh, then you're going to have a sure, a certain, and probably a sharp response. I suspect that it's the threat of freedoms, whether real or or perceived, that is a, a part of the cultural unrest that we have and we're seeing all around us because there are some who feel that they don't have liberties that they ought to be able to have and that there are others who believe that their liberties are now being threatened and so as a result people are living in conflict in part in order to protect their liberties liberty is an important aspect of the way we live and so it may be all the more peculiar And all the more difficult to swallow when we hear the message that Paul gives to the Romans in this second part of Romans chapter 14. Without retracting at all his statement that he made to the Galatians almost a decade earlier, for freedom you have been set free. If we were to summarize what Paul says in the passage that we are looking at this morning, We can't miss that Paul is saying, for those who would follow in the way of Jesus, love trumps liberty, always. There's a law of love and there's a law of liberty. The law of liberty says that don't oppress other people with just your personal uh, positions, your personal preferences, and, and your issues of conscience. Really, that's what Paul was dealing with in the first part. That was the conflict that had arisen in the church in Rome and has arisen in probably every church that has uh, ever existed, where you have people that Paul calls those who are of uh, a weak conscience, those who are more restricted in their conscience and feel less liberty, and those who believe that they have far more permission to live because Christ has made all things clean. And so it's for freedom they have been set free and they have more liberty. And living together in one body at times, the 
issues of conscience come into conflict. And Paul dealt with that in the first part of Romans chapter 14. And he says to us, don't judge those who have more liberty and don't despise those who have more restricted liberty. And yet as he moves on and he digs deeper in the passage we're looking at this morning, he doesn't just give us the negative of what we should not do. Don't judge, don't despise. But he also outlines for us through what seems almost the first time reading a a corn maze kind of thing of instructions and commands and explanations. And they're they're all kind of there. And so this is the first that you've read it this week. It may look all kind of jumbled together. Uh, But the driving message there is not just that love trumps liberty, which is is clearly what, what jumps out there. But he's also telling us to make every effort, kind of being proactive, make every effort to help one another to grow in the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. And as we dig into this this morning, we're going to work our way through, but there are kind of in in three kind of parts, three kind of headings, two of which come straight from the text. One is more of a a summary of, of that part of the text. And we'll explore what... Paul is instructing us the way that we are to live our lives and the way that we are to live our lives together as the body of Christ. The first command and first principle that we come upon here in our text is that we are never to trip up our brothers and sisters in Christ by what we do or what we do not do. We see that in verse 13. Not only Let's not pass judgment. He's, he's connecting that. That's the connector to what we had looked at last week. But in the second part of that, but rather decide never to put a stumbling block or hindrance in the way of a brother, which also would mean a, a sister. Now, in ancient times, there were no straight lights, no paths, no lights to you know, mark your, your pathway. And so if somebody was to put a large stone in on a path or in the middle of the road and you were walking down unaware and it wasn't a particularly bright moon, you quite likely would trip over the stone that was put in the path. And Paul's saying, don't let your lives, you know, what you do with your liberty, because he's particularly speaking to the, those that he would say who have a, a strong conscience or more liberty in how uh, you want to live uh, your, your lives. And that's, that's who his focus is in, on in this second part of the passage. Uh, but he's saying, don't do anything that would cause your brothers and sisters to, to stumble. And the imagery that he's using there is about the way that people walk with God. Walk is a, is a very common and, and old and taken from the New Testament metaphor for the relationship that we have with God. And so we walk with God. It indicates both the, the fellowship and the connection that has been secured by Christ and the fact that it's a journey, that we are in a process, we're works in process and we're on a journey and with God. And as God is walking with us and we walk with God, we grow in our intimacy with God and then we become more like him because he's shaping us as we walk along the road. And so what Paul begins this portion saying is, look, look at your own lives. And as he is about to explain, you know, while you definitely have liberty and nobody should take your liberty away, you choose, make up your mind. Don't use 
your liberty to become the stumbling stone that's going to hinder the walk of those who don't have the liberty yet that you have. And maybe they never will have that in this lifetime. But nevertheless, we can hinder other people by what we do and what we don't do and by what we eat and and what we drink. And Paul's being uh, very clear uh, about this is that we should not allow our lives to be stumbling stones. And then he goes on in, in, in verse 14. He says, look, I know, and I'm persuaded in the Lord Jesus Christ that nothing is unclean in itself. So he's not saying that your desires, your liberties, and what you do when you're not a stumbling stone to somebody else, that that's a problem. He's saying that in Christ, that which at one time was prohibited is, is now, has now been made clean. But then he says something that's sort of uh, startling if you, if you look at it and, and maybe even a little bit confusing. He says, I'm convinced that, 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 everything is, that nothing is unclean in itself, but it is unclean for anyone who thinks it's unclean. And so if somebody thinks that eating a particular kind of meat, whether it is meat that had been sacrificed to idols or whether it is meat that was not prepared kosher, uh, both of which are probably uh, in, in view here, or drinking alcohol uh, with your meal or tr- drinking alcohol while you're watching a ball game. Whatever it is, those things are not prohibited by the scripture. But for the person who thinks it's wrong, well, then it does become wrong. And, and if you think about that for a moment, you might wonder, so is Paul becoming kind of a relativist here? I mean, okay, well, it's right for you, but it's wrong for you. And does the person who has a narrow conscience, do they get to determine everything for everybody? And do they determine? And how does something that is not wrong become wrong because somebody thinks that it's wrong? I mean, isn't, you know, God kind of beyond that? What God says is it, and we're to conform to all of that. And here it seems to give power to a person with a narrow conscience. Paul's saying that if, it's, if it becomes wrong, if it's, if it's wrong for them. Now, we need to be very clear that Paul is in no way a relativist here. And, and as we look at this passage, it's important that we recognize here that this is probably one of the clearest indications that Paul is still talking about issues of conscience as opposed to issues of sin. We looked at it last week, but it's important that we always reinforce this. There are issues of conscience and there are issues of sin. An issue of sin is an issue that God has clearly spoken about in the scriptures and said, this is prohibited, you do not do this, and this is something that is required, you must do this. And so doing what is prohibited or failing to do what is required, that is called sin. Missing what God has called, missing out and and, and disobeying God in any way is sin. And there are a number of issues that are issues of sin. There are a number of truths that are about God and about the gospel that have been clearly expressed that people are not given latitude to believe whatever it is they feel that they want to believe because they've been clearly expressed in the scripture. But there are other things in the scripture that have, and often these are applications of principles, that there is no specific prohibition or the prohibitions, as we see when it refers to dietary laws, they have been removed because they were part of, uh, of the celebratory nature of a relationship with God. They were ceremonial, and they have been fulfilled in Christ, and so, therefore, that's not a problem. In the book of Acts, there is a, a dream that Peter had 
And God spoke to him in his dream and told him to go eat a whole bunch of unkosher things. And Peter's response was, no way, I'm not eating that. My mother tells me, you know, eat that, go to hell. I'm not doing that. And God said, don't call unclean what I have called clean. And so we do see, if you look at the whole of Scripture, and Scripture interprets Scripture, that even some things that people have narrow consciences about, there, there's a clear instruction that is given liberty. And so those things become issues of conscience, where people think, this is the way that I will most honor God. I will honor God either with my liberty or by refraining from participating in things. And what Paul's saying here is that, you know, it's everything is clean, uh, but for the person to whom it is unclean, it is an issue of conscience because he's not saying that there's a different standard for everyone. He's saying that the person is violating their conscience, and if they do something that they believe to be wrong, well, then they would be grieving God. They would be violating um, God's uh, standards in their mind. It would be like thinking that they're disobeying and doing it anyway. The attitude toward God would be wrong in that way. Now, what is an issue of conscience? Because it's important that we understand that. I heard a good illustration sometime back, and yesterday I watched the William and Mary and Elon football game, so it seems a little odd to do in March, but uh, so it, the illustration actually fits. But it was. Uh, the illustration that I heard some time ago that I, I found to be helpful in this is to imagine that there is a, a football team. So imagine the William & Mary football team. And on the William & Mary football team, there are players that wear the eye black. Those of you who watch the game, you see certain guys or some guys and sometimes most of the team having you know, grease stripped underneath, uh, underneath their eye. And, or sometimes it's a little cleaner. They have now patches that they can put under their eyes. It's kind of black. And the, the reason is, is they believe that it takes away the glare, and so they're able to, to see better uh, in, in, during the game, see the ball, see others more clearly, and so they wear the eye black. So imagine on William & Mary's team, there's a bunch of the guys that are wearing uh, eye black, but then there's a handful of other guys that said, well, I, I don't want to wear the eye black, I'm not going to wear the eye black. And the guys who said, I wear the eye black, they were shocked that people wouldn't wear it. And a few of them said, look, I'm not going to play with anybody who doesn't wear eye black. You don't wear eye black, I'm not playing with you. And now all of a sudden you have this division on the team. Now, the whole thing is, is ludicrous. It's ridiculous. And the reason that everyone who has any idea of both what the eye black is and, and what the purpose of the game is, you realize that wearing eye black, not having eye black, has absolutely nothing to do with how you play a football game. It has nothing to do with being a team. It has nothing to do with the object of the game. And so somebody who is going to make a big issue out of whether somebody wears the eye black or doesn't wear the eye black, they are exercising issues of conscience, and then they would be letting those issues of conscience divide them, separate them, and hinder them from the objective. Well, in the church, the same thing is true. There are things that are, have nothing to do with the gospel. They have nothing to do with the mission of the church. And people have opinions about them, which they are entitled to have. But they can never, should never have those opinions at the expense of somebody else when it has nothing to do with growing in God's growing in grace and and, and completing the mission of the church. All of things that fall in that category become issues of conscience. And Paul is demonstrating here that we should not allow our issues of conscience become a stumbling stone for those who think that it is wrong. In fact, he uses a word in verse 15 that it was, it's a little, seems a little serious here. You know, at first we 
can see, you know, don't trip them up, don't make them stumble, certainly don't want to make them fall. But in verse 15, for if your brother is grieved by what you eat, you're no longer walking in, you're no longer walking in love. That itself should be instructive. Look, if, if you do something that is, and you couldn't care less whether you grieve them, that means you love your liberty more than you love your brother. You're not walking in, in love. But as it goes on here, he says, by what you eat, do not destroy the one for whom Christ died. Destroy? We went from somebody falling down over a stone to now being destroyed? How, how does what I, my exercising a liberty of something that you uh, perhaps don't uh, approve of, or you exercising a liberty of something that I'm not comfortable with, how does it destroy somebody? That just seems to be kind of a uh, exaggeration, doesn't it? It depends on how you're using the word destroy and the and the extent of it, how you um, how, how something is destroyed. Let me give two illustrations that I think will make this point. One is something as simple as a, a nice vacation. Now, in our church, we have a number of people who God has blessed, and you have tremendous amount of resources, and so you go on vacation. You might choose to go on a nice ski trip in Colorado or go to the Caribbean for, you know, a week or two and kind of live it up for, for a time. And, and if God has enabled you to do that and that's what refreshes you, then great. It's a wonderful thing. Now, imagine somebody who is in that position and they're able to take those kinds of trips and they're, they're not in any way you know, arrogant about it or think that they are above anybody else. In fact, in, in a kind of a, a level of, of humility, they're, they're talking with somebody else in the church who is of much more modest means. You know, more than making the ends meet, but, you know, they've got a family, they're paying their bills, they're putting money away for, for college for their kids, and, you know, they're not, not in danger of losing their house, but uh, nor are they going to be ever featured on lifestyles of the rich and famous. And this couple who takes the extravagant vacation is, becomes friends with uh, somebody who is of more modest uh, income. And as they begin talking and they're ta- looking ahead to the vacation, they're saying, you ought to come. Come with us. You know, you, I know you all usually go to the state park and camp for a little, but I think you would really, really enjoy this. You know, they're not offering to pay for the trip. They're just inviting. They want the company. It's, a, it's, it's an affirming thing. And it would be a very uh, attractive idea, something that maybe this couple hasn't ever done, something they dreamed of doing and just not really something that they've been able to do. But what the one couple for, for, is free for the one couple would destroy the other couple because of the couple of the more modest means decides they're going to go and experience the same vacation and try to pay for what they cannot afford. It would not be reinvigorating it would be destructive because while the one couple has the resources to pay for this vacation the other couple if they paid for the vacation that would be taking money out of the college fund for the kids that would be taking money away from the mortgage that would be taking money they just don't have the resources and and so while there's absolutely nothing wrong with going on a nice vacation doing what they knew they shouldn't do could ultimately harm them destroy them and, and Paul is saying, look, don't use your liberty in a way that if somebody doesn't have the conscience to do this, they don't have the resources in, the, in, the, in their conscience bank. And so if you try to entice them to do what their conscience thinks is wrong, it ultimately is going to erode in them in some way. They're not only going to not enjoy it, but they're going to feel bankrupt. 
similarly, Paul's encouragement is that if you try to encourage somebody to do what they believe wrong, and, and I think that more in view here would be those who might be younger Christians still coming along the way, feeling their way as to what they can and can't do, and what is right and what is wrong, and perhaps they grew up being told these things Christians don't do. You know, drink, chew, go with girls or guys who do those kinds of things. And you tell them, you know what, it's okay to play cards. It's okay to go do these things. And they are within issues of conscience, at least biblically speaking. But if somebody doesn't have that conscience on their own, you're enticing, you're training somebody to violate their conscience. And then it becomes their conscience as they mature is now... It's broken. It's unreliable. It's like a GPS that just kind of sparks and goes in all different ways. They either learn never to pay attention to their conscience, and they no longer have this gift that God has given to speak to us, not as perfect direct revelation, but guides us and reminds us of what God has told us to do and to not do, and guides them in what they ought to or not to. They either learn to ignore it or it just becomes dysfunctional. It's broken. They, they just don't rely on it anymore. And if they don't have that conscience that functions simply because you've stretched it beyond that person's present capacity, then ultimately that GPS, absence of the GPS is going to lead them into something that is destructive. It's not universal, it's not always, but it's common enough that Paul is addressing this issue and he's saying, look, be mindful, be proactive to help build other people up. And don't use your liberty to lead them to destruction. And then Paul picks up and follows, don't let what you regard as good to become spoken of as evil. In other words, something that is very good, but this person whom you took that didn't have that liberty, whose conscience is now violated, who either hates themselves now or is now off the trails of, uh, of walking in a healthy way with God. And they look back into the different instances and they say that, you know, so-and-so, they did this, and they, that was just a mistake. I should have never, never done that. And so they speak as if what you do, which is permissible, is, is evil because you used your liberty in a way that was in violation of the law of love. Now, I do need to put a caveat on here, and I think John Stott says it most simply, and it is this, is in no way does destroy here mean that a person who is elect becomes unelect. We're talking about shipwrecking a life or shipwrecking a conscience, which could lead to destruction. Or those who are on a path who perhaps have not made profession of faith that look like, you know, but it doesn't change those who are elect, but it does change lives. And so Paul begins and he tells us, don't use your liberty to become, to trip up those who are your brothers and sisters in Christ. And then the second thing that we see here is that there are more important things than our liberty. Now, that statement is not in the text, but we do see the principle here. Rick Warren's, uh, in the first chapter of Rick Warren's Purpose Driven Life, he, he says something very simple that we all need to remind ourselves of over and again. It's not about you. We're reminded in our catechism, the first catechism, is that the primary purpose of our life 
is to glorify God and to enjoy him. In other words, it's not primarily about you. You're the beneficiary of that relationship, but it's primarily about God. When Jesus was asked, what is the greatest commandment? He, he turned the question over and, and, and asked one of the uh, questioners, well, what, do you, what, have you, what do you think? And they were told, love the Lord your God with all your heart, your mind, and your strength. And Jesus said, you've answered wisely. And he said, and the second is like it, and love your neighbor as yourself. And, and so that second part, which is still second in importance, there is a priority there. The greatest commandment is our orientation toward God. Love God with all your heart, your mind, and your strength. And the second greatest, but it is so important that it can't be left out according to the way that Jesus instructs, is that we need to love uh, the people who are around us. Part of the way that we love God with our strength is by loving other people. Now, in the church in our day, we see people getting that backwards. Uh, love your neighbor with all your heart and your strength and love God with whatever you got left over. And we can become shipwrecked in that way. But it's not about you either way. First and foremost, it's about God. And then it's about others. But the reason it is wired that way and the reason we're told this is that we find our greatest joy, we find our greatest peace when we are oriented in the way that God has designed us toward God and then out toward other people. There are more important things. And in the text where we get that is when Paul then appeals to the kingdom of God. And he says, the kingdom of God is not a matter of eating and drinking, but of righteousness, peace, and joy. And so he's pointing to the kingdom of God, which is the reign of Christ in the hearts and the lives of God's people everywhere. It doesn't have a geographical boundary you can't put on the map saying this is part of the kingdom of God, but this is not. Wherever the gospel is bearing fruit, whether that is in multitude like it is here and in many countries around the world, or whether there's one believer among a particular people group, uh, the reign of Christ is in the life and heart of that particular person. It is spreading, and it will one day encompass the whole world. Paul appeals to the kingdom of God, and he says, look, it's, the essence of the kingdom of God is not your liberty. Liberty is part of the kingdom of God, but that's not the essence of the kingdom of God. The essence of the kingdom of God is righteousness and peace and joy, which may involve your liberty. But the essence of it begins with righteousness. And so we to understand, we need to understand, well, what is what is the righteousness of the kingdom? And perhaps we may ask a more fundamental question: what is righteousness? Biblically defined, righteousness is right action or right behavior that is propelled by a right faith. People do wonderful things. Unbelievers and believers alike do wonderful things, and it's not propelled by faith. But if you look at the last sentence of our passage here, anything, anything that is not done because of faith, it's sin. In other words, because we have this tendency to use our good works and then present them to God as if he ought to be impressed somehow, that he ought to cut us some slack because look at all we've done. We do all these good things. Surely you can overlook these things that we didn't do or things that we did that were wrong. And we tend to go to God as if our relationship, somehow we can earn our salvation, merit something. And going to God in that way, in any way, other than by falling down and recognizing his holiness and being overwhelmed by his love and his grace, 
that is approaching God in the wrong way and we're robbing him of his glory, it becomes a, what I'll call a doxological injustice. We are robbing God, doxology, of his own glory. And so it's good deeds that are propelled by right faith. The theologians have distinguished what the scripture teaches in two different aspects of righteousness. Those of you who are, are getting very afraid right now that I'm going into deep theological things, please bear with me. You'll be able to process this easily enough. There's a sense of active righteousness, which are the things that we do because our faith has freed us and propelled us. And then there is something that's called passive righteousness, which is the righteousness that God credits to us simply because we believe in Jesus Christ. The scripture also teaches us that without the passive righteousness, there is no real active righteousness. Without our recognizing that we must be served by Christ first, and that we are in need of the righteousness of Christ on our behalf, and then we can believe in that righteousness, and in that belief, we respond and we love others. We grow in actual righteousness. There's two aspects of righteousness. But to understand that, we need to ask this question. So what is the righteousness of Christ that he did that, uh, because of the right faith? What is it that Jesus knew and believed that led him to act? And what is it that he did because of what he believed that we need to believe in? And the answer is he went to the cross. He laid his life down. He offered himself as the sacrifice on our behalf. His understanding that we had shipwrecked our lives because of sin and we couldn't save ourselves. And his understanding that he being God in nature is perfect, became like us, lived a perfect life, not only teaching, but living faith. And then that faith propelled him to the cross, which he voluntarily went to in order that those who God calls, those who believe, believe in what he has done, believe in his righteousness, right action propelled by right faith, they would not only be forgiven of sin, but credited with all the righteousness of Christ. That's the passive righteousness that comes with faith. But when we rightly believe what God has done, when we are in union with Christ because of that faith, we are told that that gospel message that we believe about Jesus is the power of life and it is bearing fruit in us and around us and throughout the world wherever it is proclaimed. And that moves us out. That's the power that moves us out to actually obey God and to love one another and to do things that are truly righteous. And so again, not losing sight here, Paul is saying the kingdom of God is not about your liberty fundamentally. It's part of it. But more than that, it's about righteousness. And that righteousness leads to peace. First and foremost, there's the peace between man and God that Jesus has secured for us. And then because there is peace between man and God, there becomes internal peace. Because you can have peace with God, you are able to be at peace within yourself. Because whatever your failures, whatever your brokenness, whatever your sin, Christ has covered it. You are not alienated from God. You can take that deep breath and be relieved. 
And because that's true of you and because that's true of me, if we are focusing on what is true and we're at peace with God and we're not lacking anything, God will provide everything and we can believe the promises of God, well, then you and I can be at peace with one another. We can be at peace with others, regardless of whatever differences that there may be. We can be at peace because this is what Christ has secured. And if we are all at peace with one another, both internally and externally, well, I would assume that would be a great recipe for joy. And in that joy, you enjoy all the gifts of God, and some of you will enjoy your liberties, and some of you won't, and it takes us all the way back to the cross again because we're not at peace anymore. And that's what Paul is dealing with, that dynamic. But he's saying, look, the kingdom of God, to those of you who have liberty, it's not about, first and foremost, the kingdom of God is not about your liberty. It's about righteousness. It is about the righteousness of Christ. It is about passive and active righteousness. And we see this elsewhere, and even Jesus himself has said this. The first priority of our lives ought to be this. Matthew 6.33, seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. Okay, that's the kingdom that Paul is talking about here, the kingdom of God. But there's something in that that we often easily, so, so easily overlook. It doesn't say, the, seek first the kingdom of God and righteousness. It's, uh, Jesus says, seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. See, we tend to look at that passage and say, okay, believe and behave. That's what Jesus is calling us to do. But the reality is it's believe and believe. It's believe in the kingdom of God because the king has come and believe in the righteousness of the king because that's the his part. And it brings us back fundamentally to the whole idea of the passive righteousness that we believe in the righteousness of Christ who gave himself for us, which then changes us, shapes us, frees us to do right things. And it is also the basis of our liberty. And Paul goes on and says in verse 18 here, whoever serves Christ, whoever thus saves Christ, in other words, whoever, whoever has, seeks first the kingdom of God and his righteousness is acceptable to God and is approved by man. In other words, you're not coming to God on the basis of your goodness, you're coming on the basis of Christ's righteousness. So you're acceptable to God. And when we understand that and we live that out, there is both a humility and an ability to have freedom to love. Well, then, of course, the people around us are going to find us acceptable. Or many will. And then Paul goes on and he says this, and it's the, the last principle. We won't talk a whole lot about it. But Paul then says this in verse 19. So let us pursue what makes for peace and for mutual upbuilding or edification. The idea there is edification is like an edifice, a building that's going up. And each of us are living stones that Jesus is knitting together in order to build that thing up. And we all are needing of one another to be part of that edifice. But we also are in need of Christ to, to, to be at work within us and alive within us. And so we are committing ourselves. So let's commit ourselves to make sure that we are not just committed to our own personal spiritual growth and living out of our own personal liberties, but we are committed to the building up of the body, not dividing because of some differences that we may have. But commit to building one another up. And what we need to see there is the intentionality. In other words, let us... As Paul was saying that here, let us pursue. We see earlier in the, in the very beginning, in verse 13, make up your mind, or, or rather decide, or, or make up your mind, as some translations have, there's an intentionality that is required of us. 
as we are to seek first the kingdom of God, as we are to seek the, the righteousness, as we are to live in relationship with one another so that we can pursue both righteousness and unity and the mutual upbuilding until all come to full maturity in Jesus Christ. So as we look at this passage, we are reminded that the kingdom of God is not a matter of eating and drinking, but of righteousness, of peace, and joy. But this we must always remember, is that in the kingdom of God, liberty is yours, but love always trumps liberty. Father, we pray with thanksgiving with this word, though it is hard. And I pray that you would grant us the grace first to recognize uh, where it is hard for us. Our own tendency to be self-absorbed, even as we might be gracious to people around us. Help us to die to self as Christ died to his glory. Grant us the grace to be able to be secure in your grace. It frees us to love others, even if circumstantially and situationally foregoing certain parts of our liberty. May we value the unity and the edification of your body, your church, of more importance than our temporary joy. May we find joy beyond what we anticipate as we see you at work in us, through us, and knitting us together as we grow in your grace. Father, be at work by your spirit that this word would be evident in this church and in your churches throughout this community and throughout the world. That the watching world would see the oneness and wonder and then know that there is a God who loves and who is at work through his people. To the praise of your glory and grace, we pray in Christ. Amen.